0: the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. At I the- don't know what's going on. <laughs> what is going on? We must find out what is going on.
1: Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Teeson. Welcome to our podcast about the hell is going on. So, Mark, surprise us. What the hell is going on? We're talking about the coronavirus.
2: <laughs> surprise! <laughs> but we're actually talking about intelligence and in the coronavirus. So, I mean, this pandemic that we are now experiencing, I mean, we just had 17 million people file for unemployment in three weeks. We are going to have anywhere between 25 and 40 percent reduction in gross domestic product and the size of our economy in the second quarter. This is an attack on our country by a virus that makes 9 11 pale in comparison in terms of the economic and even in the loss of lives. And like 9 11, we weren't ready for it. Right. Um, So that's the question. Does our intelligence community,
1: which spends so much time looking at China, You know, as the largest country in the world, as a country obviously with nuclear weapons, as a country that has an active chemical weapons program, an active biological
2: weapons program. And even more worrisome, active wet markets.
1: (laughs) Can you believe they've reopened, by
2: the way? Oh, my gosh. We
1: spend a lot of
2: time looking at
1: China, but do we spend enough time looking at China and the health threat that it poses to the rest of the world?
2: Answer is no. Apparently, apparently, <laughs> because our we're we're in complete lockdown as a result of our failure to do that. And look, there's a lot of criticism of the Trump administration for not having been ready for this. There was also a lot of criticism of the Bush administration after September 11th that he didn't heed the warnings that were coming. You know, you had uh, Richard Clark saying how he was pounding on Condi Rice's door trying to get her to pay attention to al-Qaeda. There was a the briefing, famous presidential daily brief, bin Laden determined to, t- to strike the US. It's an interesting question of whether that criticism of the Bush administration was fair or whether we should have looked even further back at the Clinton administration and its failure to respond to repeated attacks against the United States. And similarly, is it fair to pin this all on the Trump administration and its failure to prepare or should we be looking further back at the failures of his predecessors to prepare for this
1: I think part of the problem actually is less about you know who the president is and whether you know Barack Obama let us down or Donald Trump let us down or you know we always want someone to blame here in Washington but I think the real issue here is that we are in so many ways stuck national security wise in the construct that was built basically in 1948 you know our state department basically looks the same our defense department obviously you know much more sophisticated much better weaponry but in terms of organization pretty static as well and of course the intelligence community despite the unbelievable layering on that went on after 9/11 basically looks at threats the same way they always have you know which is do you have people who are trying to kill us do you have weapons that are trying to kill us you know and what are you saying about us in the in the halls of government in secret places like Beijing and Moscow
2: i would look at it a little bit differently than that i think that we did do a lot of change after the September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks, both in our intelligence community and in our military, our entire structure of government. In fact, I did a whole speech for President Bush at West Point at graduation, comparing the changes we had made after 9/11 to the changes that Truman made at the start of the Cold War that prepared us for that. But you know, it seems like always the pattern in America is: don't anticipate a tragedy, allow some catastrophic event to happen, spend. Billions and billions and trillions of dollars refocusing the government to make sure that second, that event never happens again, succeeding, but then not anticipating the next et- uh, event. Right. So we're we're always ha- fighting
1: the last war. And so
2: what, what's going to happen now is in the wake of this pandemic, we're going to have to restructure the intelligence community and restructure the public health infrastructure of the country and all sorts of different things. We're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy focusing on how do we reorganize government to make sure we never ever have something like this happen again, and we'll do it, and we may stop the next pandemic, but then something else is going to hit us that we weren't anticipating.
1: Right. Well, I mean, that is the nature of the world. But at the same time, I really do think that part of this is that the bankruptcy of institutions, the loss of faith in government is a big part of this because, frankly, if Donald Trump had stood up two years ago, if Barack Obama had stood up six years ago and said, I want to spend X you know, billions of dollars preparing us for a pandemic, there would've been a lot of criticism.
2: Well, George W. Bush did do that
1: yeah, <laughs> in 2005,
2: right. and we spent a lot of money on it, and we prepared the stockpile and all the rest of it. And then in 2009, there was the swine flu, and we depleted the uh, stockpile and never refilled it because... The imperative wasn't there. I guess partly one of the things the Bush administration was trying to do after 9 11 was: you know, we had a failure of imagination in 9 11 of how we might have a catastrophe in this country. Let's think of other ways that we're not anticipating and, ha- and use our imaginations to anticipate. And one of the ways he predicted we might actually get hit was a pandemic. And lo and behold, 15 years later, here we are. But it's hard to sustain that for 15 years over multiple administrations because the feeling of, uh, that we had after 9-11 of vulnerability dissipated as we weren't attacked again. And so we thought we were invulnerable again. And guess what? Once we got attacked by a virulent ideology, and now we've gotten attacked by a virus.
1: So. Should it be the job of the intelligence community to try to anticipate this? I mean, you know, one of the things I worry about is that as everything becomes politicized, we end up putting more on the intelligence community than we should. You know, I'm still asking myself whether it's right that the CIA is operating drones that don't come under any you know, war powers resolution. So you know, they can go off and shoot off drones against terrorists as part of their missions. I worry that you know, with all of the political hot buttons that are out there, climate change and populism and disinformation, that the intelligence community is going to get saddled with now anticipating health emergencies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that a good thing?
2: Probably not, though they certainly have a role in it. It's probably primarily the job of the CDC and our public health institutions to give us that early warning, though a lot of this has national security implications as well. So they've got a role too. But, you know, we've got the perfect person to answer your question, Danny, because uh, we've got the guy who actually delivered that PDB briefing to President Bush, bin Laden determined to strike us back in 2001, Michael Morell, who went on to become uh, the acting director of the CIA. So it's really a pleasure to have Michael Morell with us. He hosts his own podcast on CBS News
1: Radio called Intelligence Matters. He's actually, though, a career intel guy, a career intel analyst, and he served as a deputy director of the CIA from 2010 to 2013, and twice as acting director, first in 2011 and then from 2012 to 2013. He's now a senior counselor and global chairman of Beacon Global Strategies, which is a consulting firm at which we know lots of great people here in D.C. So we're pretty lucky to have him.
2: Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks so much. So you're a host of a podcast of your own, Intelligence Matters. It's one of my favorite podcasts on national security issues. Tell us a little bit about the show.
0: We have an episode a week, and we sit down with a national security person. Sometimes they're currently serving in the administration. Sometimes they're formers. Sometimes they've got Uh, breadth on all the issues, like former national security advisors, or sometimes they're very narrow, right, on one particular topic, like I did one on coronavirus, the virus itself this week. But the reason I love it is because it reminds me of being in my office at CIA before I went to the White House or before I went to Congress to talk about a specific issue is I would get the best experts in the building, in my office, and I would ask them a thousand questions. And that's what my podcast feels like.
1: Oh, that's awesome! No, that really—I think Mark and I feel the same way. We learn so much from our guests, and for us, it's a real pleasure to have—and frankly, a privilege—to have people who know so much about these various issues. You like know, Mark, you. And I, Mark and I are going to go practice medicine after this whole coronavirus <laughs> thing is over. We've had, we've done so many coronavirus podcasts, but something that that we really wanted to ask you about—a terrific op-ed you had in the Washington Post four ways U.S. intelligence efforts should change in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Would you walk our listeners through that? Sure. You know, it shouldn't be surprising to anybody that the intelligence community
0: has for its entire lifespan been focused on what we all consider to be the traditional national security issues, right? Right. Chinese military modernization, Russian military capabilities and intentions, right? The plans, intentions, and capabilities of terrorist groups, right? All of that makes perfect sense. But my co-author, Glenn Gristel, who just retired as the general counsel from the National Security Agency, he and I are good friends, so we decided to collaborate on this because we both feel the same way. We need to broaden the definition of national security that there are issues that are outside of the traditional national security framework, whether they be pandemics, whether they be the vulnerability of supply chains, whether it be climate change, whether it be any sort of non-traditional national security issue that in some way impacts our security, that the intelligence community should be focused on those. And in doing that, one of the arguments we make is that The best way to do that is to take advantage of open source tools. The number of tools out there tapping in open source are growing by the day, and the intelligence community needs to be on the cutting edge of those. Let me just give you an example. There are companies that do sentiment analysis around the world. So they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people in every country in the world who they task to tell them about, you know, what do you think of the Coca-Cola brand? Well, you could also task those people to tell you when they see disease in their particular area, you know, when they see something unusual from a medical perspective, right? And that might be able to get you out in front of an epidemic or a pandemic. So the use of open source in those ways, I think, could be, be revolutionary and could help places like NIH and CDC do their job better. And then the third point we argue, which is, look, there is no such thing as a free lunch. And if you broaden the scope of what the intelligence community does, you're going to have to resource them. We make what we know is a um, non-starter suggestion, which is moving 1% of the defense budget to the intelligence community. We know that's not going to happen. But we just wanted to show how 1% of the defense budget equates to a 10% increase in the intelligence community budget. Just wanted to show the disparity there. And then our last point is this virus has driven home a lot of things. But one of the things that's driven home is other countries' willingness to use disinformation against us, right? We've known that for a long time and we learned a lesson the hard way in 2016. The Russians have never stopped. Um, They're very active in that space. And now the Chinese, as a result of coronavirus, have also gotten very active in the disinformation space outside of China, right? They were always very aggressive at it in China But now they're doing it very aggressively outside of China, with much of it aimed at our interests. So this is going to become an area where the community is going to have to focus even more than it already is. So those are the four points we make.
1: No, it was terrific. And there are so many things I want to ask you, I don't even know where to start. But one thing I worry about, you know, during the Obama administration, obviously, there was a, a heightened focus on climate change, which then diminished in the Trump administration for different sort of different perspectives on that challenge. How much do you worry that the uh, intelligence community will be buffeted by the political fashions of the moment? Obviously, right now, it's going to be health care. If a Democrat is elected in November, it's going to be back to climate climate change. And then we have disinformation. We have um, corruption, something that I've talked about often as an issue that I wish the intelligence community focused more on. At a certain point, aren't aren't they just going to get beyond what their abilities are? Even with that extra Uh, 1% you're planning on stealing away from Mark (laughs) Esper? Yeah. So I'd say two things.
0: One is there's a little bit of a game that goes on. So the IC and CIA have focused on the national security implications of climate change for a long time, right? The IC shouldn't be in the business of doing the science of it. You know, is it actually happening and why is it happening are questions that should be left for scientists to deal with and not intelligence officers. But we should be focused on the national security consequences, right? So people having to move in search of water, people engaged in conflict over water, the U.S. and Russia and other nation states fighting over resources that are now available right in the arctic that weren't available before so we should be focusing on those right and we should probably should be focusing on those more than we actually are is what glenn and i would argue but the little secret is that we focus on on what we think is important irregardless of what administration is in office and what their political views on certain issues are so for example when bill clinton came to office The vice president, Al Gore, said, you know, I want you guys to have a climate center. So we created a climate center and took the analysts who were doing the national security implications of climate and put them in one place. And then the Bush administration came to office and said, we don't want you to have a climate center. So we got rid of the name climate center, but we still did the national security implications (laughs) of climate. So, So there's a little bit of a game that goes on, right, in terms of how you name things. But I would say that in general... We need to focus more on those kind of things. Again, you know, pandemics is a good example. I don't want the intelligence community to be the one in the U.S. government responsible for making a call on whether a pandemic is about ready to happen. That's CDC's job, right? That is clearly in their bucket. But what I want and what Glenn wants is the intelligence community to ask itself, how can we help CDC do its job, right? It might be from this open source monitoring I'm talking about. It might be from traditional intelligence collection showing, for example, I don't know this, but showing, for example, that the Chinese were not being fully transparent or outright lying about what was happening in Wuhan, right? And making sure you're collecting that kind of stuff and making sure that it's getting to the right place, not only to the White House and to the traditional national security agencies, but making sure that it actually gets to CDC and to NIH as well so that they can use it in building their models and their analysis.
1: When there was a question about, you know, who knew what when, you tweeted and said it's hard without more public information to know what the IC reported and when and and Exactly. Can you talk about how good that is?
0: So I actually had a reporter call me yesterday and say, you know, what's the relationship between CIA and CDC? And the answer is look, I haven't been in government for seven years, so I don't know. I have no idea what it is today. But I have to tell you when I was the deputy director of CIA, I was not aware of a relationship between CIA and CDC. didn't well, this mean there wasn't one, but I wasn't aware of one.
2: But this was the problem before 9-11 too, which is that the sharing of information between the FBI and the CIA could have uh, impacted our readiness. You you know you were the briefer for President Bush. You were telling us offline he used to call you Mikey, uh, but yeah, dur- but be- before 9-11, when he got that famous uh, PDB, which was declassified, Bin Laden determined to strike U.S., the IC and President Bush got a lot of criticism for not anticipating the 9-11 attacks. And now we're seeing the same thing with President Trump uh, getting criticized, uh, saying that he was briefed by the intelligence community, he was, he was warned about this, and he didn't heed the warnings. You probably find the criticism of Bush was a little bit unfair. Uh, is the criticism of Trump unfair?
0: Yeah, so it's a great question. And there's a parallel between 9-11 and the pandemic. And the parallel is that the intelligence community and many other people, not just the intelligence community, but many other people, for years, have been providing what intelligence analysts call strategic warning, right? And with nine eleven, it was for five or six years. The FBI and the CIA, five or six years before nine eleven, the CIA and the FBI were saying, you know, this group Al Qaeda, we're really worried about it. This guy Osama bin Laden, we're really worried about him. You know, he's coming after us. You know, at some point, he's going to make an attempt. He's already attacked two embassies in East Africa. He's already attacked a U.S. warship in Yemen, right? This guy's coming after us. That's strategic warning. The same thing was provided to multiple presidents with regard to a pandemic, right? With many people, CDC, NIH, intelligence community, many people saying at some point, there is going to be a pandemic. We can't tell you when, we can't tell you next year, we can't tell you 10 years from now, we can't tell you how bad it's gonna be, but at some point, there's gonna be a pandemic. Strategic warning. What nobody provided in both the case of 9-11 And in the case of the pandemic was what I would call tactical warning, which is we can tell you that Al Qaeda is coming after us on this date, in this way, in this manner, right? The intelligence community failed in that mission. I don't know whether CDC failed or not. We've got to figure that out in its mission of warning that a pandemic was coming, right? When did they first say that? I don't know. And did they say it early enough? I don't know but it doesn't sound to me like they said it early enough. So I think there was probably a tactical failure here to warn early enough about a pandemic. Now, the lesson here in terms of the strategic warning is really, really important. Is governments in general, not just the Trump administration, not just the Obama administration, administrations in general, American society in general, and the American people in general tend not to take action on strategic warnings. They tend to wait for the bad event to actually happen before they take action, right? Think about what the difference would have been had President Clinton taken the fight to Al Qaeda in Afghanistan immediately after our our embassies in East Africa were attacked in 1998. There probably wouldn't have been a 9-11. Could he have convinced the American people of the need to do that in the fall of 1998? Right. very easy to do it after 9 11 could he have done it in the fall of 1998 i don't know didn't even try and so there is this tendency on the part of americans to kind of push strategic warnings to the side don't pay attention to the experts until it's too late and then ma'am we're all over it right and we successfully deal with the problem but we do have this tendency to not listen to strategic warnings.
2: There's a similarity in 9 11 and this, in that before 9 11, we had a series of escalating attacks. We had the Cobar Towers, we had the embassy bombings, we had the coal going even further back, the first uh, World Trade Center attack. And we didn't take those things seriously, and the result was 9 11. Similarly, here we had SARS, we had the uh, right. swine flu, we had Ebola, we had Zika, we had all these near misses, and right. we still waited. Uh, but the difference between nine eleven and then is that nine eleven was a failure of imagination, right? Because no one could have anticipated that nineteen guys would with box cutters would take planes, turn them into missiles, and fly them into buildings. We right. knew no failure of imagination to figure to figure out what's happening. Literally, what's happening now is what was it was anticipated It's just the different virus. so
0: exactly. so exactly. it's a, so it's exactly. a, it, that's a big difference.
2: you know, should we have been better prepared for this?
0: You know, I think so. The Bush administration got very interested in this in the second half of the administration. They put together a strategy for dealing with a pandemic, and the Obama administration similarly had a strategy for dealing with a pandemic. They actually handed it over to the Trump administration. But having a strategy for dealing with a pandemic once it starts is one thing it's completely different to do two other things that you also need to do. Number one, you need to find ways to mitigate the risk of the bad thing happening. So what would that have meant? That would have meant getting very aggressive with the Chinese about these animal markets, right? And really pushing hard on the Chinese to get rid of them so that we would reduce the chance that there'd be a pandemic that originated from animals to humans. Another example, of what you need to do is you need to actually prepare, not just a strategy, but you actually need to prepare in terms of getting the right uh, stuff in stockpile, right? Then the right masks, um, the right ventilators, right? Getting prepared in that way. And we were not doing enough on the mitigation front and we were not doing enough on the stockpiling front, right, to be prepared for this. That's where I think we failed.
1: So another interesting question, you know, when we talk about the, the analogies between 9-11 and this, which we do, you know, on, on not just the national security front, but also on the economic front. But one other interesting aspect is, is what lessons we're teaching terrorists about our vulnerabilities to a bio-attack, uh, a bioweapons attack. How important do you think that is?
0: So I think it's very important. You know, we know that terrorists have been interested in biological weapons for a long time we know that Al-Qaeda was. In fact, we learned after 9-11 that prior to 9-11, they were actually researching anthrax and anthrax dissemination and how do you kill the most people. And we also know that ISIS was interested in biological weapons. They actually used chemical weapons on the battlefield that they made in university labs in areas of the where there were universities. So I think this will be a reminder to them of the damage that can be done from these kinds of bioweapons. Now, having said that, it's not easy to engineer something that is as perfect as the coronavirus. I mean, this is a really unique virus. I did an interview with with a doctor the other day, and he argued that, that this thing is so perfect that it could not have been produced in a lab, that there was absolutely no way that science at its level today could have produced this perfect of a virus only nature could have done that so it'll make them more interested but we've got to keep reminding ourselves that it's hard but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to it from an intelligence perspective and a preparation perspective.
2: But for a terrorist, it doesn't necessarily take the biological weapons expertise to produce it. They could just turn to nature. You remember in the Bush administration in 2001, we did an exercise called Dark Winter, where terrorists released uh, smallpox into shopping malls. And that exercise, three million people were infected and a million people were killed. Why would terrorists not simply uh, look at this, look at the damage that's been done to our economy, which dwarfs the damage of 9-11, and think, you know what, instead of sending 19 guys with box cutters to get on planes, I'm going to send 19 guys to Wuhan or to uh, the Ebola River in in Africa and get them to infect themselves with a virus and then come and start coughing on everybody. I mean, I say it in a funny way, but isn't that a a realistic threat?
0: Absolutely. And the anthrax thing was the thing that scared us the most because literally a teaspoon of finely granulated anthrax, like just a teaspoon of it in the London subway could kill tens of thousands of people. So absolutely, it's something we need to focus on. And this is going to be an absolute reminder to everybody about that, including the terrorists.
1: The other thing I think that this has laid bare, and obviously the worm was already starting to turn on this question even before the coronavirus, is just the Chinese, the nature of the Chinese government, the nature of its relationship with its own people, you know, better people die than than someone think that Xi Jinping is weak, the disinformation, the unwillingness to cooperate, the destruction of the initial genome sequencing. Just from an intelligence perspective, do you think that we have been sharp enough, focused enough, and clear enough about the challenge that China poses? So there's an arc
0: right, to that narrative that answers that question. The intelligence community 10 years ago, like China scholars everywhere, you know, believed that the Chinese, as they became richer, would become more liberal, small l, right? Would become more like us. And boy, did that turn out to be a wrong judgment. In fact, it's gone the other way, right? They've become more like them. They've become more communist, not less. You know, Xi Jinping's main goal is to maintain and strengthen the Communist Party. He talks like a hardline communist when you listen to him talking to his own people. He doesn't talk that way internationally, but boy, he talks that way domestically. We've learned a lot about China as a society and Chinese politics and where that country's headed over the last 10 years, right? So there's been a lot of learning and we didn't quite get that right. You know, what really worries me at this moment is that China is no doubt in my mind, absolutely trying to take advantage of the current situation to significantly boost their influence in the world at our expense. There's a huge diplomatic effort to do that, and there's a huge propaganda effort to do that. And the propaganda effort has a positive side to it, where they're trying to paint a picture of solidarity between China and the rest of the world. And there's a negative side to it, right, which is disinformation, which is the U.S., this is a U.S. weapon. And the U.S. can't lead in the world anymore as a result of this. And the U.S. is not capable of even taking care of itself. So they are being extraordinarily aggressive. Diplomatically, Chinese leaders, the whole group of them, are calling foreign leaders around the world every day just to check in, just to say, hey, how are you guys doing? Do you need anything? We're here for you. And then they literally have Chinese doctors and nurses and Chinese medical supplies on every continent at this moment except Antarctica. So they're being extraordinarily aggressive here and trying to win influence. And they want that influence for one reason and one reason only, which is to push countries to make decisions that are in China's interests, right? Very narrowly based foreign policy. And we got to figure out how to push back on that and be effective at it, or we're going to find ourselves at the end of this thing in a place that we'd rather not be.
2: It's like an arsonist who sets your house on fire and then shows up with a bucket of water. I mean, we're learning more and more that the Chinese regime was uh, directly responsible just through its mishandling of this and through its cover up for this becoming a global pandemic. I mean, they knew absolutely.
0: They knew absolutely. that there was
2: human-to-human transmission in December and they didn't, middle of January, they were still saying there's no human-to-human transmission. Uh, they wouldn't let the CDC come to the ground to help. They wouldn't give us viral samples. They, literally, this would, have, would not be a global pandemic if they had had accepted cooperation and been truthful.
0: You know, As an analyst, I would say, I agree with everything you said up to the point where you said it wouldn't be a global pandemic if the Chinese had done the right thing. That I don't think we know, right? It would not be anywhere as bad as it is, mm-hmm. no doubt about that. But would it have spread out of China? You know, We can't say, right? We really can't
2: say. There's a study at the University of Southampton that said that if they had acted three weeks earlier, uh, 95% of the cases would not have happened. Yeah.
0: So I don't know about that. But clearly they mishandled it
2: and they mishandled it largely for political reasons. Here's a question for you. So why did the Chinese lie? Why were they in such a hurry to cover this up? David Ignatius, my colleague at the Post, had a possible theory. He wrote a column the other day, which basically said that there's doubt about the origin story, that this uh, started with animals can- contaminated in the wet market in Wuhan. And he said there's a competing theory of an accidental lab release of bat coronavirus. The Chinese Wuhan branch of the CDC is 300 yards from that right. uh, wet market. And he said that there are a lot of people who are saying that it might have, a sample could have leaked, there could have been improper waste disposal, not that it was a bioweapon that was being engineered, but just they were studying back coronavirus there, or a lab worker could have accidentally been infected, and that that lab was only a biosafety level two and compared with this biosafety level four. How much credibility do you give the possibility that one of the reasons the Chinese were so desperate to cover this up is because it didn't happen organically, because it was an accident in a government lab?
0: Yeah. So as an analyst, right, you never rule out a possibility, right? until the data rules it out for you, so I'm not going to rule that out, but I have seen absolutely no evidence of that, right? There is no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence that exists is that evidence that I talked about earlier about how sophisticated this, this virus is and the fact that you know, there's no way it's man-made. Now, I, I understand you're making a different point.
2: Yeah, the suggestion again, is that they were studying bat coronavirus and that it wasn't very well contain. not yeah. that they were so, engineering it as a bioweapon, but that this yeah. virus so leaked not, out of the lab.
0: Yeah, so not going to rule it out, right? Not going to rule it out, but again, nobody's shown me any evidence that that's the case, right? It's just speculation. So you just got to be careful with speculation. That means wrong, it just means you can't prove it, and there's no evidence for it. So you just got to be careful with that. You know, I think the stronger argument is that what is Xi Jinping? most concerned about. Xi Jinping is most concerned about his people believing that he is not running the place efficiently and effectively, right, and not running the place in their interests. And he has a very, very strong incentive to create the perception that things are being managed well. That's incentive enough for him to not be transparent, for him not to lie, for him to, once things became clear that they were bad, to blame local officials and not officials in Beijing, Right? I think that's incentive enough for him to lie and is an explanation for why they weren't transparent about this and why they took the steps they took.
1: And of course, we need to take that knowledge to the bank. We need to treat with great skepticism almost everything we learn from the Chinese government about healthcare, about national security, about human rights, and about technology. Thanks. So I would just add one more thing. Yeah, of course. As it comes back to intelligence, right? Is
0: what we're talking about here right which is exactly how did this start and what actions did the chinese government take that actually made it worse that's something that we want to understand right in every detail that's something that the intelligence community can provide significant help with because of their collection capabilities
1: Amen to
2: that. Hey, Michael, thank you so much. And to all our listeners, tune in to Michael's podcast. It's called Intelligence Matters on CBS Radio. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for coming. It was great to have Michael on the podcast. He's a really smart guy. And uh, I think he's the only uh, former CIA director or head of CIA that has his own podcast. So that's pretty cool. We could Maybe we could be head of CIA one day.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how it works. You have a podcast and then you become head of CIA.
2: Exactly. But I think he was a little bit too dismissive of the idea that this started in that Wuhan CDC office. He makes a very good point that this virus is too perfect to have been engineered by anything but nature. I don't think many people are suggesting that this is a bioweapon per se though some are but I think what's very possible and makes a lot of sense and if you're going to have intelligence communities 911 was a failure of imagination we should have a little bit more imagination here is that there was a lab that was 300 yards from that market where they were studying bat coronavirus, and this what was, was been released as bat coronavirus, and the idea that this lab, you know, Chinese labs probably don't have the same security that American biological labs have, um, that either a worker got infected or uh there was a problem with waste disposal or an accidental leak of some kind and i think that it makes sense that the chinese government would be terrified of the idea that this would it would get out one because if their people thought knew that this happened in a biolab that would could be the end of xi jinping And plus, if this was a lab accident, then their culpability legally is very different than if this just sort of happened organically in a a wet market.
1: I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, that really is the challenge here is that this is the sort of information that is very hard to come by. And, you know, again, I just don't have enough confidence in my understanding of its propagation or, frankly, in the origins of this to understand whether we can say it was a cover-up of a lab accident or actually something that simply occurred in nature because, of course, these wet markets have spawned viruses before. You sure. know, SARS is a similar one. Uh, and I think the, the avian flu similarly came from a Chinese market, you know, animal to human transmission. So it's equal opportunity over there is the challenge, isn't it? There are the labs and then there are the wet markets.
2: Well, here's something we do know with certainty. China lied about this. They lied repeatedly. They knew that this was capable of human to human transmission. They had their first case. We now know the first case in November. And in mid-January, they were still telling the World Health Organization and the world that there was no human-to-human transmission. That was a lie. They had 1,700 health workers who had been infected. The only way health workers can get infected is if there's human-to-human transmission. Of course. So they literally, we are in this pandemic because of China's lies. So
1: another another area where, you know, I disagree, where the, I think there really was an intelligence failure is this analysis that had been done by the intelligence community 10 years ago that growing prosperity was going to make the Chinese Communist Party a kinder and gentler version of itself. And of course, that's true. That was the conventional wisdom. And that's the biggest problem with the intelligence community. It reflects the conventional wisdom. I still remember the director of Asian studies at AEI, Dan Blumenthal, going on and on trying to persuade people that more money, more riches, more prosperity was going to make the Chinese Communist Party more dangerous, more aggressive, more willing to invest its money in the kind of things that it could use to oppress its neighbors and its own people. And boy, was he right about that.
2: Absolutely. And I I think Michael acknowledged that. I think our colleague Hal Brands put it really well in a piece the other day. He said, they got rid of Marxism, they just didn't get rid of Leninism. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that that uh, they've become probably the first free market totalitarian regime in human history. And the part of the problem is, is that as the economy develops and as technology develops, the technology that allows for free exchange of ideas here in our country also allows for unprecedented surveillance <laughs> in, a, in a country like China. You know, we're we're all concerned about people hacking into our iPhones and using our information. What if we had a depressive government that was doing that proactively, as opposed to just criminals trying to get into our into our systems? So you're absolutely right. I think one of the things, good things that is going to come out of this whole. Pandemic and the, the silver, silver linings lining. of the cloud is we're going to have a fundamental reassessment of our relationship with China. Josh Rogan had a great column in the Post uh, this week about how basically polls show 77% of Americans, including 67% of Democrats, blame China for the virus. And there's large numbers of both Republicans and Democrats in the country who feel we need a fundamental reassessment of our relationship with China. China has really hurt itself with the cover-up, with its failure to contain this virus, with its failure to cooperate, and and the authoritarianism that fueled all that. And I think we're going to have as a country a bipartisan consensus that we need social distancing and economic distancing from China, and that we need a new China strategy.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. So I want to end with one of my favorite vignettes. Okay. And this happened in a classified setting, so I can't tell you exactly what it was about. But it was a briefing on something bad that China did, and that China had been engaged in for quite a while involving weapons proliferation. And there was a briefer from the Department of State. He's now retired uh, as a scholar actually from Brookings, Bob Einhorn. He, I think he was the undersecretary of state for policy. And Dianne Feinstein, senator from California, um, was there. And she had made a practice of going back and forth and meeting with the Chinese leadership and, and really you know trying to build a constructive relationship. And it wasn't Xi Jinping at the time, it was Hu Jintao.
2: Yep. And, well, uh, she had a Chinese spy on her staff. <laughs> True. Yes. Uh,
1: so True fact. So so Bob is talking about this problem, right? And he's talking about the fact that the Chinese are, are still doing this bad thing that they had been doing. And Senator raises her hand and she says, "Bob, I I just don't understand. I I talked to Hu Jintao about this, and he assured me <laughs> that <laughs> that they weren't doing this. And so I just don't understand what you're saying. And Bob was absolutely floored and he looked at her, and this is why this is my favorite story, and he just looked at her and he paused and he goes, well, Senator, sometimes they lie to you. (laughs) 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 And I think that needs to be the epitaph, right? This is sometimes, not sometimes, pretty much always. If it's the government of the People's Republic of China, they lie to you. Couldn't agree with you more, Danny. Excellent way to end with beautiful harmony between me and Mark. Hope everybody had a great holiday week, Easter, Passover, and, and all the rest of it. And we'll see you soon.
2: And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellataei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C.